Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's October 2nd, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes. And of course, because it's Tuesday, it's the Tuesday Morning Quarterbacks, and I am joined by Greg Easterbrook. Thanks for joining me again, Greg. Hi, Charlie. Well, this is an unusual moment. I'm speaking to you from Wisconsin, of course. This is uh, uh, not typical that, that here we're talking about baseball more than football. Uh, given the Brewers' rather extraordinary come from behind, not only winning the division, the division title in that uh, one-game playoff, but but winning it over the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Greg, it just doesn't get that much sweeter here. The the Brewers winning the division could be a sign of the end times, Charlie. So I'd uh, be on the watch out for that. And I will tell you that my Tuesday morning quarterback this week, as I live in Bethesda, Maryland, which according to the national media is now the world capital of teenage debauchery. Um, and I have a reference in, in the column this week to the big public high school, not private prep school, public high school that all my kids attended and got a fine education at. And that public high school is currently undefeated in football, which has not happened in human history. So we need these things. Yep. today that that is that is exciting stuff it is exciting. um okay th- now the for, for people who haven't listened in the the your your column the tuesday morning quarterback is an interesting i would say buffet of sports mainly football but also Let, political say, charlie say yeah. melange it makes you sound better educated I was. I actually had a series of words there, and I was. That was one of those that I thought I would, <laughs> because because in the current context of the of our pornified politics, I want to write a piece by the way on the pornification of our politics. You know, it that that sounds a little bit. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how. I, I can imagine being asked by a Senate Judiciary Committee someday about you know whether I was ever ever, ever participated in a melange. <laughs> well, and I would. Have, I would of course. Say I don't remember. <laughs> we 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 always think that French terms are erotic, but when you're actually in France or Belgium, and I, I know a little French, it turns out most of them mean put the cardboard over there or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> that is true. Well, I want to talk about, we're going to talk about uh, Brett Kavanaugh. You have some very interesting thoughts about that, including that uh, it is time to have term limits for the Supreme Court. And I I, I think there's going to be, uh, you're going to get a little traction for that idea. Not that it's actually going to happen, but it is a good idea. But before we do that, I just have to ask you about the your comments about this year's you know fad in the NFL of the run pass option, which you refer to as RPO. And you raised a question because I, I am not an expert in all of the the arcane uh, details of, uh, of 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 football, but I mean I'm a big fan. But you you say you're dubious about whether this the RPO the run pass option really exists. Right. I think it's the Loch Ness. Educate me. I think it's the Loch Ness monster of contemporary football. Everybody claims to have seen it, but you can't actually verify it. Uh, it's a very trendy thing to say. It is actually seen in college where the rules are slightly different than in the NFL. And the coach of the Eagles, who of course just won the won the NFL title, has said that his team uses a lot of RPOs. But I think that's smoke and mirrors. Uh, a run-pass option in theory is when the, bo- the when the ball is snapped, the quarterback himself doesn't know whether the play is going to be a run or a pass. We, we've long had the zone read option and, and the triple option where the quarterback at the snap doesn't know who he's going to hand off to. But the, the RPO takes it one step farther, and at the snap, the quarterback doesn't know whether he's going to run or pass. Um, 
it works a lot better in college because in college the linemen can go downfield in almost any situation. In the pros, the linemen can't go downfield on a forward play, so the linemen have to know whether the play is going to be or run or a pass. And I think that means the quarterback has to know. So last night, for example, in the Monday night game, an excellent game, Kansas City at Denver, at one point the Monday night announcer said, oh, look, Kansas City is running the RPO. If you slowed down that play and watched it, the quarterback faked in the direction of the tailback, but the tailback never put his hands in the configuration to get the ball. That is to say, the running back already knew when the play was called that they were just going to fake a run, that there was no chance he would get the run. So it was not a true RPO like you'd see in college. What it was was a standard standard play action fake by another name. That is, fa- that is fascinating. See, now I, I feel smarter knowing that sort of thing, but there's so much stuff I don't know. Speaking of which, let's talk about the Kavanaugh hearings. You have some some views on that. Um, and uh, you, you, you make the point that this whole notion that, that anyone should get a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court is, is just absurd. But let's just go back to some of the comments on Kavanaugh. And just a little background. You know, when Kavanaugh was appointed, I thought he was an excellent choice. Uh, and, I, and I said so. I mean, I, I thought of all of the, the people that Donald Trump could have put on this court, Kavanaugh was probably the safest choice, the most establishment choice. It was in many ways the least Trumpian thing he's done because Kavanaugh is very much a, a, a Bush-type Republican. Um, I was concerned about his, his, uh, his uh, rather expansive view of executive powers, but uh, in terms of whether or not he was qualified for the job, um, I thought there didn't seem to be any question about it. And most, even you know, anti-Trump or Trump-skeptical conservatives supported Kavanaugh because he's the kind of person that they would have supported, we would have supported, had he been nominated by a President Rubio, a President Cruz, a President Walker, or a President Bush. But obviously, um, we've come a long way since then. You're not as much of a fan of Kavanaugh. So you you have a section, the legal reason, the legal reasoning reason to oppose Kavanaugh. Make your case. Well, I, I am I am also worried about his view of executive power. I, I would say he's fully qualified. Uh, he has a great resume. He has a great professional reputation. He's done a good job on the bench. People are now complaining about does he have a judicial demeanor. The way to judge that is, well, you ask the people who have argued in front of him, and I think that they would say, yes, he does have a judicial demeanor. He's, de- he's demonstrated it in, in court. Um when my worries about Trump, one of them was that he would appoint lunatics to the Supreme Court, and he hasn't. Neil Gorsuch was an impeccable candidate, perfect in every way in terms of credentials. You may not have liked his politics, but that's a, that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Kavanaugh is a pretty good candidate in terms of politics. He's certainly better than some of the lunatics that we were afraid that, that, that Trump would offer. But I also think that he's lied to the Senate during the hearings, and I think that's disqualifying. I think Clarence Thomas lied to the Senate during his hearings. It's one thing to refuse to answer a question, but to lie under oath to the United States Senate. What, sorry, that disqualifies. What, what do you think he's lied about? I think his reference, first, I think it's the Spanish Inquisition to Mm -hmm. ask him about his high school calendar and his high school yearbook. Clearly the Spanish Inquisition. But you can't lie about it. You have to either answer truthfully or say, that question is unfair, I refuse to answer. Uh, And he didn't do any of those things. He came up with this crazy stuff about 
flatulence and drinking games and and even if it's on a subject that shouldn't have been raised, you can't lie about it. And he himself, when he was in the legal office, uh, when he, he was in the legal office working on the Bill Clinton investigation, he made that argument that even if Clinton shouldn't have been asked about Monica Lewinsky, it went, it crossed a line for him to lie about it. And hmm. unfortunately, I think he's hoist on his own petard in this case. He's done the very thing that he said Bill Clinton should have been impeached for. You, you know, I uh, had a d- debate about this yesterday, and I, I have two reactions to to those lies. And there's no question about it. Uh, some of the things he said were, uh, you know, inconsistent and basically on, on on their face absurd. But I wonder whether or not the senators are. I'm very skeptical that the senators are going to think that these lies about such trivial matters are in themselves disqualifying. Maybe there's a cumulative effect to it, but. You know, lying about your high school yearbook or lying about how much you had to drink or some of those other things, uh, they may be troubling, but it's hard for me to imagine that that has enough weight for them to justify a vote no at this point, given all the other things that have been thrown at them. Well, I, I think it's certainly true that we still have no idea at all whether the accusations against him from, from Christine Blasey Ford are true or not. Maybe they're true, maybe they're completely made up, or maybe they're somewhere in the gray area in between. So you, you can't, th- this notion that because he's accused, therefore we have to treat him as guilty. And this notion is now coming from Yale Law School yeah, and Harvard da- Law School. It's that's deep. A, that, that is a dangerous principle, by the way. It's really dangerous to hear Harvard and Yale Law School saying, well, anyone who's accused must be guilty. Lead him away to the gallows. Um, but still, I, I think it, I would be totally comfortable if any member of the Senate, Republican or Democrat, said, I am voting against him solely because I oppose his judicial philosophy, which is a perfectly conscientious, straightforward thing to do under the advice and consent clause of the Constitution. But how, how, how many members of the Senate of either party are going to do something straightforward and conscientious? Well, you also mentioned uh, Representative Mickey Edwards, who's uh, I've actually become friends with him. We, we've spent some time together and I'm not going to be on a, uh, a forum with him uh, tomorrow. And he's a former Republican uh, congressman. And, and he his opposition to Kavanaugh is 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 on principle um, be, because of Kavanaugh's stated view that the president cannot be indicted for a crime. This has always been the asterisk in the back of my mind that that seemed to be the. Um, uh, a, you know, a, a concerning position to take at the moment when, in fact, we may be about to enter a constitutional crisis in which the central issue is, is the president of the United States above the law? Well, you can, you can certainly, Kavanaugh is not alone in making the argument that the frame, that the reason the framers created the impeachment process where the House acts like a grand jury considering whether a charge is sufficient and the Senate acts like a regular trial determining whether the accused is guilty or or innocent, um, that that was intended to supplement the fact that you couldn't indict a sitting president. So it's not like Kavanaugh's view of this is crazy. It's not. There's some legal scholarship behind his view. It's certainly unsettled, but he, he can make a legal scholar's case. I just think it's the wrong thing we need at this 
moment in American history. And it's perfectly fair for senators to say, this is the wrong judicial philosophy. I don't like it. I'm not going to vote for you. Uh, oh, and, and, and by the way, say hello to Mickey Edwards. I didn't know that you knew him when, when I cited him in, the, in today's column. Fantastic guy. So let's uh, go to the, the, the heart of your case that, that basically no one is qualified for the job as, as it is now described. And that this is this is the moment you step back and and ask where the country should step back and ask, do we want to put anyone in this position of power for a lifetime appointment? Right. I I say in that column that that if you impose on every candidate the 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 standards we're now imposing on Kavanaugh, doesn't that mean no one is qualified? And the answer is yes. No one is qualified to be on the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment. So much that the Constitution of the United States is an amazingly prescient document, considering how well it stood up for 238 years or whatever it's up to right now. But nobody thinks it's perfect. And if you think of what the framers didn't anticipate about the Supreme Court. They did not anticipate judicial review. They had no idea that was coming. They were very vague about the court's powers. They did not anticipate, after the 14th Amendment, the Bill of Rights was gradually incorporated to control states as well as the federal government. They didn't have any idea that was coming. And they had no idea that the administrative state that developed for entitlement programs beginning roughly in the New Deal and for the administration of a large industrial society beginning roughly in World War II. They didn't know those. They didn't know any of those things were coming, all making the Supreme Court much more important than they thought it would be. And they didn't know that the extension of human lifespan was coming. The first nine justices to serve served an average of nine years. The most recent nine to serve have served an average of 23 years. The framers hated aristocracy. And if they were alive today, they would realize What's going on in the Supreme Court? You're creating lifelong aristocrats with an unaccountable power to lord it over or lady it over the United States public. That was not the plan. And the solution is to have some kind of term. Some people have said mandatory retirement ages. Some states have those for their highest courts. Other countries have those for their highest courts. I think a term limit is the most straightforward solution. And yes, it would require a constitutional amendment, but... The Constitution's been amended, amended 27 times. We can do it a, a, another time. If there were a term limit, this life or death sense of, oh, my God, the world is going to end if the other party gets its way with this yeah. lifelong aristocrat, that would be gone. You raise an interesting point in this column that, that, that that's worth addressing at this particular moment. That Why are... When I mean, you think about the the, the most controversial appo- uh, appointments, you, you go back and, you know, Bork, uh, Clarence Thomas, now Brett Kavanaugh, there doesn't seem to be a symmetry in the attacks on liberal. I'm trying to think of the last time you had a liberal or de- Democratic, ju- uh, you know, a liberal judge appointed by a Democratic president who faced this kind of fierce criticism and opposition. So you have a theory about why, and you put it this way, why Democrats and their media allies have been much meaner to Kavanaugh than Republicans and their media supporters have been to any Democratic court nominee in the present generation. Why is that? And the, you know, I'm thinking as you say that, and the last liberal justice who faced a lot of opposition from the right based on his liberalism was Earl Warren, who was appointed by a Republican. So um, I think the difference is... I was thinking of Abe Fortas, but that just dates me. 
uh, Abe Fortas. Yeah, you know Abe Fortas. You know. Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson's yeah. personal lawyer, and that didn't work out so well for him. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think as the way society and American politics have evolved, let's just talk about the current generation. The analysis I offer in today's column is that it has to do with the political party's central goals. The central goal of the Democratic Party is to use government for social engineering. The central goal of the Republican Party is favors for the rich. And rightly or wrongly in both cases, whether you support or oppose those two central goals, the Republican Party has been able to get voters to approve its central goal at the ballot box. The Democratic Party has not been able to get voters to approve its central goal of the ballot box. So the Democratic Party thinks that it must use the Supreme Court to enforce its central goal, and thus it's more emotional for them than it is for Republicans. That's my analysis anyway. I think you're right about that. Uh, on last week's podcast, we talked about uh, the culture of elitism of prep schools and the and the whole phenomenon of uh, of people in, in, in Maryland who, well, in Bethesda, where they have really good private, I mean, public schools. Uh, so it's not like you're escaping crappy public schools to go to private schools. And I think you described it as uh, as essentially buying prestige, you know, by speaking of the aristocracy and the, the elitist. You make an interesting point in this week's column about elite colleges and that, uh, that per- perhaps that that the donations to the elite colleges should not be deductible. Yes, there's this theory evolving that the elite colleges themselves, even if they no longer discriminate in admission, and and none of them do anymore, are still, they're part of this sinister conspiracy to keep the privileged in power in this. And and this sinister conspiracy theory, it's been on the cover of Atlantic Monthly, a fabulous publication. But Atlantic Monthly told us six months ago that the existence of Williams College is part of a, to use their example, that is part of a conspiracy to keep to keep down the working classes. I, I just find that really hard to believe. But a horse of a different color is should average people subsidize the elite colleges. The fact that donations to colleges with big endowments, Harvard's endowment is now up to $39 billion, which exceeds the GDP of Bolivia. When you, get, when you give money to Harvard, it's tax deductible, which means that in, in effect, taxpayers whose children will never go to Harvard have to pay one-third of the dona- donation that a rich person makes. And I think the solution is for, for colleges with big endowments relative to their student bodies, you, you, you change the law so that donations to those colleges are no longer deductible. And if you want to give money to Harvard, give all the money you want. Just don't expect the taxpayer to pay a third of it. I hope that such a, pro- such a change in tax law would encourage rich people to give money to the hundreds of colleges and universities that do desperately need capital, unlike Stanford and Princeton, and that serve average people. So how, how would you draw the line between elite and not elite? Would it be based on uh, the size of the endowment? For tax purposes, I think the way to do it is the size of the endowment relative to the student body. If your endowment exceeds a million dollars per student, and there's 15 or 20 colleges and universities now, that are in that category, then deduction, then any kind of donation to the college is no longer deductible. 
Uh, I want to ask you about uh, whether for, I'm going to switch back to football. Then fortune favors the, the the bold. But today's Daily Standard podcast, the Tuesday morning quarterback, is sponsored today by Calm. Look, if you've ever felt stressed or anxious, which is everybody, right? If you're listening to this, you have to feel stressed or anxious. Have you figured out a way to to get through all of this? Have you ever, I don't know, meditated before? Um, and if not, why do you think meditation might benefit you? Do you have any trouble sleeping? Um, all of the, if, if you answer yes to any of that, you might want to check out Calm, which is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Calm gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, and more mindful life. Just five minutes of Calm can change your whole day and maybe even lower your blood pressure. I don't know. That, by the way, is not approved by the FDA. If you if you head to calm.com slash standard, you will get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, focus, and relationships, including a brand new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. Sleep stories, they're like bedtime stories for grown-ups and a lot more. So for a limited time, the Daily Standard, Daily Standard listeners can get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard, and that includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. You can get started today at calm.com slash standard. That's calm.com slash standard. And, you know, if you know anybody that's going before the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, or, you know, facing any sort of a confirmation fight, you might want to just refer them to this. So, Greg, let's talk about uh, in the NFL this year, going on fourth down, whether fortune favors the bold. And over the weekend, we had examples of where it didn't work and where it did work. Well, and we saw it in last night's Monday night game. Kansas City mm-hmm. went for it on fourth down on, on in their own territory twice in the game. And who ended up winning that game? Um to, to see NFL teams starting, certainly not on a regular basis, but it used to be once a season somebody would go for it on fourth down on their own territory. And now we saw it twice just last night in the Monday night game, and it was it was the winning team. In the, in the Tennessee Titans game, they faced three fourth downs and in the overtime converted them all. In that situation, it was overtime. They had to go for it. No, no, nobody would have punted in that situation. But situations last night with Kansas City at Denver, where most coaches would punt, and the coach says, no, let's keep the offense on the field, I think gradually the NFL is moving in, in the direction of not punting on fourth and short. And, and I think you could imagine a football in the future, in the near future, where punting on fourth and short becomes rare rather than common. And I think that brand of football will be a lot more exciting. The, uh, the question of officiating has come up every time we've talked about this. I don't know that there's been any week that we have not had an officiating controversy. And as you point out, this is interesting because the, the officials are now full-time, right? They're full-time, they're paying tons of money, but it doesn't seem to be getting better, does it? No, if any, if you're, if any of you listening remember the 2010 official strike where we had, well, well yeah. where we had the famous fail Mary game with, on the very last play, two officials giving contrasting signals of what had just happened at that it was time. A Packer officials, game, by the way, so we all remember it. Packer game, of course, you have to remember. <laughs> um, but at, at that time, all the officials said, "Oh, the whole problem is you need to pay us a lot more money. If you pay us a lot more money, then the officiating will improve." Well, the league now, now does pay 
officials substantially more than it paid, and the officiating has not improved. Maybe it's not possible for the officiating to improve. Maybe the pace of the game is so fast and the athletic ability of the players is so high that we're never going to get better than, well, usually they're sort of right. But the officiating mistakes this year are as bad as they've ever been. Well, give me give an example of one that that stood out to you. Was it the Vikings-Ram game? Vikings-Ram, there were two that I point out in my column. Mm-hmm. One where there was an illegal block in the back. Listeners always say, well, why do they have to say illegal block in the back? Some blocks in the back are legal. But mm-hmm. there was an illegal block in the back downfield that should have wiped out a 50-yard gain. The officials flagged it. And then the the referee walks over and picks up the flag and says there was no block in the back. And you look at the replay, and they were right the first time. So it was right, and they changed it to wrong. Um, Also in that game, one of the Minnesota receivers was hit, excuse me, was not hit, fell to the ground, jumped back up and ran for an apparent touchdown. He hadn't been hit, and yet they blew the whistle, so the play ended. Uh, There will always be some mistakes in officiating of any sport, but it just seems like the the creation of, of a full-time cadre of men who, mostly men, there's a few women, who do nothing but officiate football and are very well compensated for it, has not improved the quality of their work. Yeah, who would have, who would have guessed that? Greg Easterbrook, the column is the Tuesday Morning Quarterback, and you can find it at the Weekly Standard website. Thanks for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.